I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 36, looking at the second half of the chapter today. Again, if you're visiting today, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel. We're coming toward the end of in these final chapters, uh, continuing our study of this look at the King. All right, I'd like to read for us uh, verses 36 to the end of the chapter. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let us be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour when he is not aware of And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, these are words spoken by Jesus, the author of our salvation, whose word is truth. And Lord, I pray that we would take it to heart and to think about our own lives and to do what your scripture says to live in such a way that we are always ready, waiting for the return of our Lord. We ask it in His name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Jim gave a great message on the first part of chapter 24. If you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to listen online to what he had to say. I thought it was very, very good, and it's going to kind of just flow right into what I'm going to talk about today. However, there was one little point that I wanted to correct. <laughs> now, as you know, uh, he, Jim shared that the pastors have had a little friendly banter going back and forth about, you know, who has the toughest passages to preach on. And then last week, of all things, Pastor Jim had to pull out a quote from D.A. Carson, who teaches at Trinity. I mean, that's like playing a trump card, you know, and saying that his text was the toughest text to interpret and preach on. Now, how do you top that? 
Well, perhaps this quote from no less a biblical expositor than James Montgomery Boyce will help to clarify things a bit more. Boyce would agree that chapter 24 is indeed a difficult passage, but here's what he said, and I quote, I'm not making this up, I'm just quoting it. He said, I do not think there is any great difficulty understanding what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse up to verse 28 of chapter 24. (laughs) He has warned the disciples about disruptive world events that will not be signs of his return. And he has predicted the fall of Jerusalem, which though an exceptionally traumatic event, would be merely another example of the kind of tragedies that will occur throughout history. But the easy part is over. Now we come to the part of the discourse that has given the most trouble to Bible students and commentators. So there you have it. (laughs) All in good fun too. But now, I I saw Jim. He's not going to be here until the second service. So if you see him in the hallway, don't tell him. I want him to be surprised. (laughs) All right. Today we're going to continue our look at what is called the return of the king. It is about Jesus Christ's second coming. And this much is certain. Jesus is coming again. Matthew's gospel is all about the king. I mean, he starts out in chapters 1 and 2 and it's about the birth of the king. And then it's about the coming of the kingdom. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, it's about kingdom ethics or values. And then in the miracles that follow, we see the power of the kingdom. We learn the message of the kingdom, that it's the gospel. And we see the mission of the kingdom to take that gospel to all nations so that all people might have the opportunity to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. But when Jesus came to earth that first time, He came in fulfillment of those passages of Scripture in particular that speak about His role as a suffering servant. Now that was not the kind of king that they expected. They expected a king who was going to come, overthrow Rome, restore Israel to a position of greatness in the world, and He would reign and the disciples would reign with Him. But Jesus didn't come to accomplish that in His first coming. He came to lay down His life for our sins. He would die and He would rise again. He is indeed our Redeemer and our Savior, but He is also a great King. And one day He will come to restore and to rebuild and to bring His reign to earth in a way that will be visible to all. And there will be no question about it that Jesus is the King over all kings and the Lord over all lords. But the question that so many of us have as His followers, the question that we want to know is, you know, when? When is He coming? And what will be the sign of His return? We are just like the disciples who at the beginning of chapter 24 asked those questions. I mean, they were standing, as Pastor Jim said, in awe of the temple, this magnificent construction, uh, this building that Herod had erected, and they looked at all those things, and Jesus had warned that it was all going to come down. Not one stone would be left upon another. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came and they asked Him, when will this happen? What will be the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? And what we notice in this text is that Jesus really doesn't answer their question. 
Jesus' focus instead is on what we should be doing while we wait for His return. The clearest answer that Jesus gives to the when question is, we don't know. And not only do we not know the day or the hour, we don't even know the month or the year. But that hasn't stopped people from trying to predict it. Do you remember Harold Camping? Last year he predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. It was sure, you know, he was preparing his followers, Jesus is coming back. And nothing happened. And so he again said, well, it's going to be October 21st, 2011. We missed it by just a few months. And nothing happened again. And then silence. This year, the secular world has sort of, you know, pulled out the date of December 21st, 2012, saying that's the day that the world is going to end according to the Mayan calendar. One Christian website I looked at said that there have been 242 dates that they could identify where people have predicted the return of Christ and the end of the world. 242 dates. I would think that there's probably been many more than that. Actually, that's just the ones that they could identify. But all were wrong up until this point. What's going on here? I even think back to when I was a junior in high school, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, came out. I read it. I couldn't put it down. I was fascinated by the things he talked about as he connected world events with biblical prophecy. And I started to think about that, and I got a little scared. I mean, I was thinking, you know, well, what does this mean? And what if Jesus is coming back in my lifetime? Do you get married? Do you get a job? Do you just go into missions? Do you just go into ministry and, and do that? And Hal Lindsey made a pretty convincing argument that since Israel became a nation in 1948, that Jesus' return would likely be in our generation. He identified a biblical generation as 40 years, so that means by 1988, Jesus is going to return. And if you believe in the rapture occurring seven years prior to that event, that would be 1981. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So what went wrong? I don't think that anything went wrong. It was our reading of the text that was wrong. For Jesus makes it very clear here when he says that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, how can that be? How could Jesus not know the time of his coming and still be God? That's a question that theologians have wrestled with. But it is an example of how he lived his life as a man in dependence upon the Father. And when he came to this earth, he voluntarily laid aside this free and independent exercise of his attributes as God. And he chose to live as we should live, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus never did anything that his Father didn't tell him to do. He spoke the words that his father told him. He did what his father asked him to do. He lived his life perfectly in obedience to the father and in dependence upon him. And so in that sense, his knowledge, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, the scripture says, just like we are to grow. 
And instead, what Jesus tells us about his return is that life will continue pretty much as usual, just like in the days of Noah. Life's going to continue just like it did in those days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking. You can imagine there's going to be commerce. There's going to be buying and selling. People are going to be marrying and giving in marriage. And those family celebrations and events will take place. All of that will continue up until the day when the flood came and they were swept away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. People will be going about their daily lives not expecting it. People will be involved in these kind of family events. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to return. The trumpet will sound and the Lord will appear and all the world will know it. I've often wondered what those people thought in the days of Noah when he was working on that ark all those years prior to the flood. They had never seen that kind of event before in their life. They had never seen that kind of rain or deluge that was going to break upon the earth. Did they think that he was some crazy old fool? You know, I mean, if you were a neighbor of his, I remember one time hearing Bill Cosby do a a comedic kind of sketch about this where he was talking about, can you imagine Noah's neighbor coming to him one day and saying, uh, you know, Noah, uh, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building an ark. Well, well, great. What's an ark? Well, an ark's a large boat for my family. Well, great. Could you move it out of my driveway? You know, and he's, he's just, you know, people are wondering, what is this guy doing? They've never seen a boat this huge. And did Noah struggle with that? I mean, he had never seen a flood either. All he was doing was acting upon the Word of God. God had appeared to him. God had told Noah what he wanted him to do. Noah had to go by faith, trusting in the promise of God's Word. And the flood came. You know, and that's the same way we are to live. We do not know whether or not Jesus Christ will come today, tomorrow, the next day, or a long time from now. But we are to live in such a way that we are expecting, anticipating His return. You see, what Jesus is telling us here is that the coming of our Lord will be sudden and unexpected. We see that in verse 39 when they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And there will be a separation when He comes. We see that in verses 40 and 41 when He says that two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Can you imagine that? I mean, there's going to be this separation. It'll be among friends. It'll be a separation among family members at times even, where these people are working together. I mean, they put it in the context of then, but it could be like two people together in the office. The Lord returns. One's gone. The other is left behind. Two women, maybe they're at an exercise class, or maybe they're working together at a friend's home, and one's taken. The other one is left behind. Sudden unexpected, a separation. Is this the rapture? It very well may be. But it may also be just a picture of God's judgment and the coming separation that will occur. And so what he tells us then in verse 42 is, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
We do not know. And then he gives a third example. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. It's an illustration that tells us something about what we value. People guard what is valuable to them. I mean, they, they put out locks, they put out security systems, cameras, they use safe deposit boxes, they get insurance. People do whatever it takes to guard and protect what is valuable to them. If you were a homeowner and you knew that a thief was going to come at a certain time in the middle of the night, you'd call the police, make sure they were there and ready, or you'd have some preparations made to defend yourself, or you would do what it takes to protect what you own. Now, if people will do that over stuff that one day is going to perish, how much more important is it for us to give thought to our soul and to eternity? The Lord's return will be sudden and unexpected like a thief in the night. So watch and be ready. And secondly, Jesus says, be wise in how you live and stay faithful. Jesus had already told his disciples the importance of being faithful. In verse 13, he says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's talking about all these things that are going to happen in this interim period between his first and second coming. Wars, rumors of wars, persecution, suffering, disasters, all these kind of events that again are not saying that Jesus is immediately going to come, but are saying that's kind of how life is in this fallen world, in this interim period. Now be sure that you stand firm to the end. And he uses another example to show us that watching and waiting for the Lord is not passive. Watching for the Lord to return doesn't mean doing nothing. It doesn't mean we just, you know, stay at home and we kind of sit there and wait. No, a wise servant will be doing what his master has asked him to do. In this parable that Jesus told about the wise and faithful servant versus the wicked servant, the wicked servant took advantage of his master's delay. There is this delay in his return. And so this wicked servant begins to think, well, you know, my master's not coming back for a while. It's pretty obvious that's not going to happen. So he begins to abuse his fellow workers and he neglects his duties and he begins to indulge himself in drunkenness and idle living and he's just squandering his time. He is abusing other people in his life. Is that what the master wants us to do? Not at all. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. The wise servant is the one who goes about his father's business. And he does what God has asked us to do. And when the master returns, he tells us that with that wicked servant, he will punish him most severely. And he will be cast out from the kingdom forever into that area where there will be this weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a picture of eternal punishment. 
In the 11th century, there was a German king named King Henry III. And there came a point in his life where he grew tired of the court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He just didn't want to be king any longer. You know, I I can kind of understand that. You know, I look at our presidents and how much they age in office, and sometimes I'm amazed that our presidents want to run for another term again because of the demands of that office. And King Henry III applied to a monastery to be accepted for a life of contemplation. Well, the religious superior of that monastery, Prior Richard, is reported to have said, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? And that will be hard for you because you have been a king. And Henry replied, I understand. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. And when King Henry III died, there was a statement written about him that the king learned to rule by being obedient. The king learned to rule by being obedient. I like that statement. I don't know a lot about King Henry III. I went and I looked and you know I saw some of the details of his life that he was actually known by some toward the end as Henry the Pious. But I like that statement that he learned to rule by being obedient. You see, when I think about our life, you know, as a man, how do you learn to be a good husband and a good father? You learn to be a good husband and a good father by being obedient to what God has said. If you're a woman, how do you learn how to be a good wife or a good mother? You learn to be obedient by what God has said. And if you're the owner of a business, if you're an employer of other people, if you work for someone, if you're a, uh, you know, a plumber or you're a carpenter or you're a, a laborer who works in another profession, you know, it's like, how do you learn to do that as a Christian? You learn to do that by being obedient to what God has said. His call for all of us is to be a disciple, to be growing in our relationship with Him and to be that kind of person who makes a difference in our world right where we live by our commitment to Christ and our faithfulness in serving Him. And what has God called us to do? Well, some obvious things that He's called us to do are the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, to put Him first in every area of our life. The second commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to care for them as we would want others to care for us. We're to treat them as we would want to be treated. And you can think of the Great Commission where Jesus said we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Those are pretty clear statements of what Jesus wants us to do and we are to be obedient to His Word. And when we do that, we are being faithful to what God has asked of each of us. In short, we are to worship and grow and serve. We're to use our gifts in a way that advances the kingdom. Because Paul said that in the last days, it's not going to be like that at all. 
In 2 Timothy 3, and I'm sorry I don't have this on the screen, I'm going to read this for us, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Paul said, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days when people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boastful and proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. He's saying that's the way the world's going to go as it moves toward the time of Christ's return, that there is going to be this great contrast. But you, as a follower of Jesus, are to live differently. We are to stay faithful, committed to God, loving our neighbor, involved in the Great Commission, serving with the talents that God has given to each of us. And then thirdly, we are to always be ready for the King's return. Always be ready for the King's return. Let me read this parable of the ten virgins. It's found in chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The ten virgins are like ten bridesmaids or attendants at a wedding. And they were waiting for the bridegroom to return. In those days, the custom went like this. When a man and a woman were betrothed to be married, the man would go back to his father's house and he would build a room for his bride. When it was ready, he would return for his bride and he could come at any time. She was to be ready, expecting, waiting for his return. The bride and her attendants were all to be watching and to be ready for His coming. But an interesting note about this is that it wasn't up to the groom to decide when the room was ready. You know, I could see a a young groom, you know, thinking I'll just throw up some bricks here and a little, you know, a covering for this and we'll be ready and I'm going to get my bride because he's excited. That decision was for the Father to make. And I think of Jesus' statement that no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. The Father will say when it is time for the Son to return for His bride. And we are the bride of Christ. 
the church is the bride of Christ. And one day our groom is going to return for his bride and we will celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. In this case, there was also a delay in the bridegroom's coming. It implies that there would be a delay in Jesus' return as well. And like we saw in that previous uh, parable of the wicked servant, we aren't to use that delay to think we can kind of live as we please. And we've got plenty of time before Christ returns, and so maybe we can just kind of slip in at the end. No, these foolish attendants, five of these virgins who were waiting, missed it because they would not prepare for His coming. Five were wise, five were foolish. The five who were wise brought extra oil. They were prepared for His coming. The five who were foolish did not. And when they asked the wise virgins to give them some of their oil, and those virgins said, no, you need to go and buy your own, they weren't being callous or cruel. The point of the parable is this, is that no one else can prepare for you. You must be ready for His coming. A wife can't believe for her husband. A husband can't believe for his wife. You must be ready for the coming of our Lord. And a parent can't have faith and believe for their children. As children, you need to make a decision to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. No one else can do that for you. You need to be prepared for the coming of our Lord. And while the five were away and buying oil, the bridegroom came and the door was shut. And they cried out, Open the door for us. And he replied, I don't know you. James Boyce offers a helpful summary on what these parables have in common. He said, In each case, the return of the Lord is sudden and unexpected. And in each case, the Lord's return results in an unalterable division between two groups of people. We saw it in the example of Noah and his family that were saved and those who perished in the flood. We see it in the two men walking in a field and the two women grinding at a mill. We see it between the faithful servant and the wicked servant. We see it between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. We will see it in the parable that's going to come. We'll talk about next week about the sheep and the goats. There is a separation and it is final. And in each case, the people who are lost are utterly surprised at their rejection. I mean, they're like, you know we thought we knew you too or we wanted to get in even in terms of this parable of the ten virgins. I mean, it is most striking here where all were invited to the wedding, all ten. All were waiting, they thought, for the bridegroom to come. All professed faith. Lord, they said. It's more than just sir, they said. It really is the word Lord, Lord, they said. And it makes me think of that passage where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. You see, those who are saved are those who believe in Jesus and who show it by the way that they live. 
It's not giving lip service to Jesus. It's not saying a prayer now and then or saying that I I, I have professed faith. The proof of it is really shown by the way that we live. And in the end, the consequences of their decisions were irrevocable. There's no second chance here. There's no universalism that everyone will be saved in the end or somehow it will all work out differently. The Lord returns and it is done. There's a judgment that comes and there's a separation based upon what we believe about Jesus and what we have done with Him in our life. George Truitt was a well-known pastor, and he was invited one day to the home of a very wealthy man in Texas. And after the meal, the host led him to a place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area. And the man pointed out, he pointed to the oil fields and the oil wells that were there on the landscape, and he boasted that 25 years ago I had nothing. But now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. He looked at the oil wells that were there. He looked at the huge herds of cattle. He looked at his fields of grain. He looked in the other direction at the trees and the forests were there. And he pointed to it all and he said, it's all mine. And he paused, kind of expecting George Truitt to compliment him on his great success. And instead, George Truitt put his hand on the man's shoulder and he pointed toward heaven. And he said, how much do you have in that direction? And the man was silent. And then he confessed, I never thought of that. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his own life, his very self? It means nothing before God. What counts is a life that is fully devoted to Him. The wise servant does what his father asks. And so I ask you, are you ready for His coming? Have you placed your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord? That's the first step. And if you are not sure about that, I'd love to talk with you. You can talk to one of our other staff members and we would love to walk through the Gospel with you and help you to be sure and to place your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. But I would also ask you, are you using your time and your talents and your treasure in a way that advances His kingdom? All of us are to do that. All of us are to make the most of the time that we have been given using our resources where we pray and we give and we go and we serve and we are obedient to what God has asked of us. Because the truth is, Jesus is coming. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a hundred years from now. We don't know. But we are to live every day as though He could come today. Will we be ready? Let's pray. Father, there are certain passages that speak to our heart because we can see ourselves so clearly in them. And we are like the disciples. We're curious about the things that you have said about your return. We'd like to know when it is, but the truth is that you want us to live each day as though it would be today, making the most of the time that we have, living our lives fully devoted to you. 
And Father, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would search our hearts and show us if there is any hurtful way in us, anything that needs to change so that we might be ready. And Father, I pray that we would give ourselves fully to Your work, loving You, serving You, giving, being generous of our time and our gifts so that our life might count. Father, use us. Use our church. Help us to be a light for you in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.